how should families live together when living between the promise of their happy ending and the permanence of their happy ending? How should families live together when living between the promise of their happy ending and the permanence of their happy ending? How might two uh, oppressed brothers live together, having escaped a, a, a country of great persecution as they await their asylum papers? How might two poor sisters live together, having been proposed to by two rich young men as they await their wedding day? How might two comrades, even closer than brothers, live together having seen their, that their commander and king return to rule as they await for the restoration of their homeland? How should families live together when living between the, the promise of their happy ending and the permanence of their happy ending? Well, it's a bit more difficult question to answer than we might think because our most beloved happily ever after stories about the most beloved family relationships often don't tell us. For in the cult movie, at 300 Miles to Heaven, two brothers, Wojciech and Raphael, seek to escape poverty and oppression from communist Poland in the 1980s. And so the story is all about their, their, their search for safety. But once the two brothers happily make it over the border, well, we don't know how they live with one another as they awaited their Danish passports. Because how these brothers lived together between the, that the promise of their happy ending and the permanence of their happy ending was seemingly not worth filming. For who wants to see a movie about two little boys playing Lego together as they await asylum papers in the post? Likewise, in the romantic novel Pride and Prejudice, two sisters, Jane and Elizabeth, seek to be married out of economic ruin in 19th century England. And so the story is all about their, their search for marriage. But once the two sisters are both happily engaged, well, we don't know how they live with one another as they awaited their double wedding day. Because how these sisters lived together between the promise of their happy ending and the permanence of their happy ending was seemingly not worth Jane Austen writing about. For who wants a long penultimate chapter on two sisters planning out the, the, the seating chart or discussing together whether to have lemon or vanilla frosting on their double wedding cake? Likewise, in the great fantasy novel, Lord of the Rings, two comrades closer than brothers, Frodo and Samwise, seek the destruction of the ring of power and the return of the true king to rule. And so the story is all about the search for peace. But once the two comrades see the, the ring destroyed and the, the returning king finally crowned, well, we don't really know how they lived together with one another as they awaited the Shire's full restoration. Tolkien, in his book, wrote over a thousand pages all about Frodo and Sam's relationship on their journey to Mordor but so little about their relationship afterwards. In fact, so little that the movies don't even bother recording it. And so with such great human stories in view, we may ask ourselves, does it even matter 
Does it even matter how families live with one another when living between the promise of the happy ending and the permanence of the happy ending? Do our relationships really matter when we're in that middle? If we've already fled the terrible old country and are about to get new passports in the new country? If we've already been proposed to and are about to embark upon new life? If we've already seen that the, the king crowned and are about to return to the promised land, does it really matter whether we live as a happy family now if one day we will soon get that happily ever after? Well, some of the greatest human storytellers don't seem to care very much about that middle. But the author of the greatest story of all the author of the true story of history, God, God cares very much about how families, his family, lives together when living between the, the promise of their happy ending and the permanence of their happy ending. And how do we know that? Well, because in the first century, when, when God's family were really growing, God picks up his metaphorical pen the Apostle Paul, and God tells Paul to write to a church family in the city of Corinth and to write a letter all about how to live as a united happy family when living between the, the promise of the happy ending and the permanence of the happy ending. Indeed, just turn back one page in your Bible and to that opening nine verses of this letter, you'll see that there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. Verse seven, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Verse nine, God is faithful by whom you are called into fellowship or family of his son, Jesus. Can you see there is a promised happy ending for this family. For this family has received a down payment of, of God's grace, God's gifts, and God is faithful. They will stay in this family. And soon their happy ending will be permanent with the revealing of the Lord Jesus. And so the first nine verses follow the pattern of, of some of the best stories we know. But, but unlike Austin and, and, and Tolkien and all the rest, the remaining part of God's book of 1 Corinthians, indeed all 428 verses following, is all about how to live with one another when living in the middle. Specifically how this church ought to live together as a happy, united family in light of their happy, promised, permanent future. Because sadly... This church in the first century, Greek city of Corinth, was not a happy family. Indeed, as we've seen thus far in our kind of fly-on-the-wall documentary series, this church family was unhappily divided. In chapter one, we watched family feuds over Christian celebrities. And in chapters two to four, we watched family feuds over the, the preaching style. And in chapter five, last week, if you remember, we watched family feuds over, over scandalous behavior, one church member was sleeping with his stepmom. And in this week's kind of Netflix episode, 
that this church family, worse than any dysfunctional TV family, hits more on happiness. For amazingly, we discover that they are also suing one another. So how might Paul deal with this next family feud? Well, having told the church that they were babies who had been fed with theological milk since they were not ready for solid food in chapter 3, and having outlined his credentials as a faithful father, as one who had taught them the truth, chapter 4, and having told them that he had pronounced judgment on one stubborn, disobedient child, chapter 5, we can well imagine at this point, as Paul hears of more squabbling in the car, of spoilt children shouting at one another, I'm telling on you, well, I imagine that we could well envision a simple and scolding parental, just stop it. Verse 1, one of you has a grievance against a brother or sister and goes to the law courts. Verse 2, just stop it. Just stop it this minute or I'm stopping the car and we're going straight home. In verse 2, Paul does not say that, does he? Instead, like the most patient of parents, rather than telling these, these siblings to just stop it, Otherwise, he's going to turn the car around. Paul reminds his dear children of where they are going in this family road trip together. And of the fact that they are living in the middle. Between that that promise of the happy ending and the permanence of that happy ending. For verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3, do you not know that, that we're going to judge angels? Twice he tells them to to remember, to recall, to know that the family of Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, that's our first big heading this morning. Know the family of Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. And since our screen went down in the storm, let me say that again for you. Know the family of Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. First big heading of two. Know the family of Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. In verses 2 and 3, Paul reminds them as saints, uh, which is in in, in biblical language, uh, a term for ordinary Christians made holy by Jesus' death, rather than special Christians made, made holy by a Pope's declaration. That as saints, that as siblings of the Lord Jesus, they will become rulers and judges over the promised land that they are to inherit. For throughout Scripture, the two actions of of both receiving a piece of land as a family inheritance and then being able to rule over that land are very closely tied together. Indeed, in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus taught that that his disciples would would inherit the kingdom of God, he quickly then says to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging. Because those who follow King Jesus now will judge with King Jesus in eternity. And so as disciples of Jesus, as as siblings of the Lord Jesus, as those co-inheritors of the promised land, Christians get to judge who will be in it. Paul says that Christians alongside Jesus will judge verse two, the world, and verse three, even angels. Now, precisely how you and I will do that is a mystery. 
how we will sit with Jesus in that eternal courtroom on the throne of the new world, gavels in hand, as the world passes before us, it's just not something that Paul unpacks. And yet the importance of them knowing that promised future was key for the present. Because how does Paul say that that happy ending should relate to their unhappy enmity with one another? Well, just have a look at verses 1 to 5 again. See if you can work it out. Can you see? Paul keeps seeming to to argue from the the greater to the lesser. In verse 2, he effectively says, if you're going to judge in the great heavenly courtroom, do you need to go to lesser earthly courts? Verse 3, if you're going to judge matters pertaining to eternal life, how much more should you be able to deal with other matters pertaining to this life? Verse 5, if you're going to wisely judge unbelievers at the end, surely, surely you have enough wisdom to judge between believers today without involving those unbelievers. Which brings us to our first uh, practical point under that first major heading, sub-point one. You get to imagine the screen coming down, indented slightly so you don't confuse it with the first heading. Practical sub-point one, you can judge wisely in the church. You can judge wisely in the church. In short, if you're a Christian, then you have the ability and the responsibility to deal with disunity in the church. Well, just as we saw last week, so we see again here. Local churches have enough heavenly wisdom to judge between one another on earth. Just as the Corinthians did not need ecclesiastical courts or or bishops or presbyteries or even church elders to deal with the grievous sin in chapter 5, so the Corinthians did not need secular judges and, and top Corinthian law firms and unbelieving juries to deal with these grievances in chapter 6. So specifically, what grievances are we talking about here? What cases cause them to go to court? Well, firstly, let me make it very, very clear what we are not talking about here. For clearly, we are not talking about serious cases. For Paul says at the end of verse 2, these were trivial cases. And nor are you talking about criminal cases. For as Paul says in Romans chapter 13, Christians are to submit themselves to the governing authorities. And that's really important for churches to remember. For very sadly, some so-called churches have employed these verses here as an excuse not to call the authorities when something serious and criminal has happened. And that is not only a great abuse of these verses, but it is a great stain on Christianity today. Indeed, if you're someone here this morning who's been affected by that in the past in some way, can I just say, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. But also, can I encourage you not to let the, the, the grave and wicked failure of some Stop you looking into Jesus because he's the only one who can heal such wounds. For Christians do not hush up serious crimes. Indeed, that's why our own statement of faith as a church says, government officials are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored and obeyed. 
with the exception only in the matters contrary to the will of the Lord Jesus. You cannot actually be a member of Edgefield Church if you think that our church should deal with criminal matters internally. It's one of the reasons why I, as a pastor, never promise confidentiality when when people come to see me. In case you didn't know, I'm not like a Roman Catholic priest. If you're planning to, to come to me to confess a bank robbery, you better turn yourself in or get running because I'm not in the business of hiding sin. You see, Paul is not talking about serious criminal cases where where social services and skilled solicitors are needed to protect people's lives and welfare. However, However, Paul does say that in trivial matters pertaining to ordinary life, those who are about to inherit the kingdom of God and judge the whole world can judge each other with great wisdom and great grace without getting unbelievers involved. And we don't know all the precise details of these cases, but I imagine that Paul is asking questions such as these. If a church member bumps into your car in the church parking lot after church, do you really need to call the cops? If a church member tries to help you with a DIY project and somehow it ends up going wrong and it ends up costing you quite a bit of money, do you really need to force them to contribute to fixing it? If you and another church member have a falling out, do you really need to to badmouth them to other people and to get a secular counselor in to arbitrate between you? If someone's child is, is really unkind to yours in the Sunday school, do you really need to get justice now? Do you really need to find a, a vengeful release valve and so tell every unbelieving about that child at school drop-off the next day? If your brothers and sisters and, and so part of God's family, those who are about to inherit the kingdom of Christ and so arbitrate together on the judgment day of Jesus, do you not think that you might be able to, to deal with such trivialities in private, one-on-one, or if there's still an issue to get help from other godly church members. For you have been given by God wisdom to judge. You will judge the whole world at the end. So surely you can judge wisely in the church. You can judge wisely in the church. But secondly, and perhaps more shockingly, In relation to this problem of of silly squabbling over small things, Paul says that if you know that the family of Christ will inherit the kingdom of God, you can also choose to be wrongly judged by the church. Second sub-point, you can choose to be judged wrongly by the church. You can be judged wrongly by the church. You can choose that path. But look down with me at verse seven. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. If you are a movie buff, uh, unlike me, Uh, you'll know that we are now just one week away from the 95th Academy Awards. In fact, even now that the stage 
at the Dolby Theatre on Hollywood Boulevard. It's being set up for next Sunday. And which movie will win the most awards? Well, we don't know yet. But one of the movies that is predicted to do very well indeed, uh, which has already eight Oscar nominations, is Baz Luhrmann's blockbuster Elvis, which tells the life of the king of rock and roll. But as this big night approaches, as this night which seeks to honor the life of the king approaches, do you know what the big Hollywood story of the day is? Well, against the backdrop of celebrating Elvis, and so the Presley family name hangs an ugly lawsuit between Elvis's wife, Priscilla Presley, and Elvis's granddaughter, Riley Keough. Both Priscilla and Riley have an inheritance. In Elvis's estate, both Priscilla and Riley have the promise of Graceland. But a late change in the will of Elvis's late daughter has caused a bitter legal battle to ignite between grandma and granddaughter over who gets the most money. And so what will be the result? What will be the result when Elvis comes up on the, on the big screen on Sunday night? Well, if you know anything about modern journalism, you'll know that all the Hollywood cameras next Sunday will no doubt be pointing away from the big screen when the Elvis clips come on and away from a celebration of the life of the king and away from all the accolades it may receive. And the cameras will instead be pointing at two women in the same family in two cinema seats set far apart as those cameras watch for a front page worthy bitter glance between grandma and granddaughter who would rather suffer family defeat than lose a few dollars they don't need because their inheritance is already great. Friends, there are no Hollywood cameras in this room. I doubt the global media will be with us next Sunday. But let me tell you that the world watches very carefully how our church lives with one another. And that whatever the world may think about Elvis, our king is much more worthy of honor than him. And so can you imagine, can you imagine how much worse it would be if, if two brothers and sisters in Christ here at Edgefield Church would rather suffer a similar family defeat than uphold the name of Christ to a watching world. If two members got in some sort of public squabble and neither of them backed down or said sorry despite knowing that they would one day judge and inherit the kingdom of God together. If two church members back themselves with, with, with non-Christian lawyers or, or secular counselors because they refuse to lose a disagreement and just take one for the team for the sake of the kingdom of God. What would that say about our church, about Christ? What would that say about the church's knowledge of what has been promised and what will soon be permanent? What would that say about how much we are following the Lord Jesus? For as Bill read to us earlier, how did Jesus act when he was judged wrongly? He willingly suffered in court, a court more unjust than any in this land. 
for his court was full of people paid to lie. And he willingly lost his reputation. A reputation more than just just losing a, a few friends in Nashville for his reputation, what was God's reputation before the whole world. And he willingly paid the price. A price more than a few bucks to get a bumped car fixed. For the price was his every drop of blood to fix a broken you and me. Friends, I know that we live in a rights-based culture and in an era desperate for justice right now. And, And there is something good about that. But if you and I squabble and speak ill of each other and struggle to let go, if you and I let dispute and disagreement fester in our church, if forbearance and and forgiveness are just not settings we ever employ, if you and I are unwilling to sometimes lose, to lose the change in our pockets, to lose the perfect reputation on on our social CVs, because we're obsessed with winning, winning more money in this world, winning greater standing in this world. Could it be, could it be that somewhere along the line between the promise of our happy ending and the permanence of our happy ending that we have forgotten the willingly wrong Jesus who we follow and his kingdom to which we follow him too? And so friends, have a look round. Have a look around. Which brother here might you need to willingly lose your money to? Which sister here might you need to willingly lose your reputation for? Which family member here might you be willing to be wronged by and suffer for it? Because you know, you know who you are and what has been promised to you and where you are going permanently. No, the family of Christ will inherit the kingdom of God and that because of that, you can judge wisely in the church and you can choose to be judged wrongly by the church. No, the family of Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. But what happens? What happens if we as Christians do know that? We know that we'll judge angels and we we, we know that we'll judge the world and we know that, that, that we will inherit the kingdom of God. But the knowledge of that happy ending just does not really change how we live with one another in any tangible way at all. Well, clearly that was a real possibility for the Christians in Corinth. For in our passages this morning, Paul not only seeks to to underscore the positive encouragement to stop fighting with his do you not know in verses 2 and 3, but also Paul seeks to underscore the negative warning if they don't stop fighting with his do you know, not not know of verses nine and 10. For look with me to verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so big point number two this morning, second big heading, no friends of this world 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. No, friends of this world will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why was it that the members of the church in Corinth continued to to squabble with one another and refused to lose money and and reputation in the world? Well, the first reason was because they'd, they'd forgotten that the church was to be their family. But the second reason was because they had forgotten that the world was no longer to be their friend. For the list of wrongs in verses 9 and 10, it may seem at first reading to be just some kind of random list. But, but I think there's more to it than that. Because this list of wrongs, is, which is very similar to chapter 5 verse 11, all seem to be things which show that some of the Corinthians were unwilling to break off a friendship with the world. For they are all things which people cling to when they desire currency in the world. And so the Corinthians continued to wrong each other because some didn't want to let go of of worldliness and the supposedly rich inheritance of this life, which is why in in verse 9, some clung on to to sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia. And so some clung on to their identity as pornography viewers and some clung on to their identity as adulterers and some clung on to their identity as homosexuals. Other Corinthians hung, clung on to to those who could apparently provide them with much in this world. For verse 9, some clung on to their identity as idolaters so that they could get more stuff in the world. For like their unbelieving friends, they thought, well, maybe I could just have a, a little bit of pagan worship on the side because that might give me a bit of a boost in my crops this year or help me prosper on the business trip. For others in the church, that they attended, they attained rather, supposed Richard in this life by continuing to take from one another or refusing to share with one another, which is why verse 10, we see that, that some clung on to their identity as thieves, kept taking other people's possessions, and some clung on to their identity as the greedy, that they kept refusing to share their wealth and food with others. And some clung on to their identity as drunkards. They kept in a state of intoxication. Some clung on to their identity as as revilers. They kept their reputation, whatever the cost to other people. And some clung on to their identity as swindlers. They kept tricking people out of land and money. And Paul says, this inability to defriend the world this desire to attain as much currency in this life, this contentment to to, to keep wearing the, the badge of the old identity proves that you are still living for the kingdom of this world, which is passing away. And it persuades me, says Paul, that you must not belong to the kingdom of God, which has been promised to you. For your actions are illogical. Your actions are akin to an illogical additional scene in in 300 miles to heaven, where two rescued brothers, Wojciech and Raphael, are about to receive their passports, and then they have an argument about whether the best communist leader was Stalin or Lenin. Your actions are akin to an illogical uh, additional chapter in Pride and Prejudice, where the two engaged sisters, Jane and Elizabeth, are about to be married. 
then fight and, and fawn over, over a date with Mr. Collins. Your actions are akin to an illogical penultimate page in Lord of the Rings where two loyal comrades, Sam and Frodo, are about to see peace, then wrestle each other to the death to rule over the Shire because we learn that actually they've kept the ring of power. Don't be deceived, says Paul. Don't trick yourself into some sort of illogical thinking that you can befriend both kingdoms, that you can keep living for both kingdoms, that you can have an identity in both kingdoms. No, friends of this world will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what's the application for you and me if we call ourselves Christians? Well, the very first, very obvious application for you and me is that we can no longer join in with the kingdom of this world either. We can no longer join ourselves to it. Instead, we must uncouple ourselves from our old identities. Indeed, first subpoint uh, under that second major heading, you cannot join with the world. You cannot join with the world. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian yet. You're quite interested in Jesus, certainly quite interested in his inheritance promised. You quite like church, or at least this one. And you quite like the first point of this sermon. For you would quite like a community where people didn't act like the world. Where people's grievances were, were dealt with in humility and grace and wisdom. But when it comes to some of the wrongs listed here and the bluntness of Paul's statement and some of the identities which are disqualified from God's kingdom, you're, you're very quickly repulsed. Because like me, you, you have friends and, and, and family and, and colleagues and neighbors who proudly identify with some of these identities and he proudly do some of these things. Well, well my friend, if, if that's you, I pray that you might trust God's words. Because these words are not mine. These requirements are, are not mine. For the kingdom of God is God's. It's not mine to give. Only the heavenly father may choose who gets to be in his family and so gets to inherit it. And of course, as a result, I recognize that, that some preachers in some churches have used 1 Corinthians 6 badly and have preached those requirements unkindly and unsympathetically. And again, I'm sorry if that's been your experience. But these words, nonetheless, are God's words. He is the author of this letter that we hold in our hand. And if we come to accept that this is indeed God's word and we cannot just cut out the sections that we, we don't like because we know that some people won't like it. Indeed, as a preacher, I'm, I'm simply called to explain the next passage from God's word. Oh, I don't preach this, this sermon every week. It's just where we're up to in this series. And these words, well... They need very little explanation. I mean, judging angels in, in verse 3, it's quite tricky to grasp. But verses 9 and, and 10 are as just plain as day. These, these verses are very straightforward. 
Jesus will not welcome into his kingdom the, the, the poor man who is known for drunkenness and does not care about it any more than Jesus will welcome into his kingdom the rich man who is known for excessive greed and does not care about it. And Jesus will not welcome into his kingdom men who keep on having sex with other men and do not care about it any more then Jesus will welcome any person who continues to be involved in prostitution or adultery or or pornography or indeed any other ongoing sexual act outside of the committed relationship of a husband and wife and does not care about it. And although when it comes to these things, no doubt many in 2023 will be tempted to think that God will just will just wink at such identities and let everyone just slide into heaven. And so Christians should be more concerned about things like cancer and COVID and community cohesion because God's commands don't really matter. Friends, God is very clear that that's not the case. Indeed, God goes out of his way in verse 9 to underscore that very danger of deceiving ourselves in that way. And so for me to study these words all week and then to stand here today and to be silent on such things, for me to say like some preachers today, I'm not really quite sure what this says. Or worse, you can just carry on with that list and you can still have Jesus say to you at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, that would not be kind of me at all. Indeed, that would be an evil thing. One of the greatest abuses of authority ever and an extremely dangerous act. And not only for those who would then think that they can continue on in those things, but also for me, who encouraged it. For Jesus warns religious teachers and says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Friends, on many of these issues, as we engage with our rapidly changing modern world, some Christians, many Christians, need to show greater care and greater compassion and greater carefulness. But other Christians need to realize that that care and compassion and carefulness is also evidenced in clarity. Yes, we are to be loving. Yes, absolutely, we are to be gentle and we are to be empathetic. But it is not meek to be vague when God has been clear. It is not humble to speak in shades of gray when God has spoken in black and white. And particularly, it is not kind to do so when we are talking about such weighty matters. For we are talking here about matters of of heaven and hell, about judgment at the end of time. We are talking about whether that the glorious new country that we all long for can be entered. We're talking about whether we may attend the, the, the wedding banquet that never ends. We are talking about whether we'll be seen as enemies or allies of the king when he wonderfully comes to restore our world. We're talking about what will happen to real people, our friends, 
our neighbors, our colleagues, when this kingdom is rolled up like a scroll and the reality of the promised land slides into view. And with that in mind, we must be very kind and very clear. We must set out the truth of verses 9 and 10 if people ask us about it. Because if you are to become a Christian, you're to keep following Christ until that final day, you cannot join with the world. You cannot join with the world. But very finally, as we close, if friends of this world will not inherit the kingdom of God, what what happens if we have been friends with it up until now? What happens if we read this list in, in verses nine and 10 and we are just loaded down? because we know that we have been stained by such things? What happens if actually we don't scorn the words of God, but we actually take seriously the words of God and then consider the eternal consequences? I'm sure that in a room as large as this, there are many, maybe even a majority, who can identify with these things, who have engaged in adultery against their spouse, who have been known as the, the, the office party drunkard, who have reviled their co-worker, their neighbor, their family member, and have committed theft on their recent tax return. What future hope do such people have? What future hope do such people like me have? Well, seconds... Second sub-point, final point, last two minutes. You can be justified and washed from the world. You can be justified and washed from the world. If you look with me to our glorious final verse, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, what glorious hope is found in verse 11. As the Apostle Paul reminds his bickering children, not not just of, of where they are going, but why they are able to continue the journey. They were able to inherit the kingdom of God, not just because they had not done the things on that list before, for many of them, just like us, had done them. In fact, many of them were actually known for continuing to do these things, but they were able to inherit the kingdom of God because they were washed by Jesus Christ, because all their evil was bathed in his atoning blood, because selfish hearts were were sanctified and, and scrubbed until they were shiny new, because all their guilt was rinsed away forever by him on the cross when he paid our penalty. And not only that, but those who were washed and sanctified and as such had had no, no spiritual debts to pay for all unrighteousness was gone in Christ, these people also were justified And as such, they had their their spiritual bank accounts now filled up to overflowing for all righteousness was given in Christ. Only the righteous may enter the kingdom of God and that righteousness is found 
in God's Son alone. Friends, that's God's great story in a nutshell. Available not just then to those worldly Corinthians, but available to worldly you and me this very day. You know, in the greatest human stories, it is the greatest families who get the promise of that happy ending that they deserve. It is the great Wojciech and Raphael who show great courage. It is they who deserve the, the Danish passports. It is the great Jane and Elizabeth Bennett who show great ability to overcome their pride and prejudice in themselves. It is they who deserve the marriage proposals. And it is the great Frodo and Sam who show great loyalty to the task. It is they who deserve their kingdom's redemption. But in God's greatest story, it is instead those who admit that they are not great. It is those who admit that they are undeserving of the permanent happy ending who get the certain promise of it. Indeed, it is only. It is only those who admit that they need washing. It is only those who admit that they need justifying. And so it is only those who run to their sibling, Jesus, who get to be part of God's family and get the inheritance at the end. And so accordingly, as we think again of the, the purpose of this passage, the primary situation that, that Paul is speaking to, it is only those who run to their sibling, Jesus, who will understand that they do not need to run around claiming their own rights against their siblings, for they understand that they have no rights in themselves. Their every right comes from their brother, Jesus. Friends, when we forget our identity in Christ, when we forget where we are going because of Christ, we will end up fighting one another like the Corinthian church. But if we know that we're in the middle, living between the promise of our undeserved happy ending and the promise and permanence of our undeserved happy ending, I am confident that we will avoid being a divided, unhappy family and instead get the joy of being a united one which brings much fame to our Heavenly Father. Let's pray to him now. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that in your Son, amazingly, people like us can be washed. Father, we thank you that amazingly, in your Son, we are justified. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace to us, to those who befriended this world, who were rebels against the ways of the King. Father, we know, we know that we do not deserve the happy ending that we are promised, that will soon become permanent. We rely on your Son alone. We rely on our brother and so would you help us? Would you help us to keep Jesus in view that we might be willing to lose to each other 
for the sake of winning glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.